Hello, my friends, and welcome back to yet another episode of Watching the Watchers Live. My name is Robert Govea. I am a criminal defense attorney at the R&R Law Group. We're located in the always beautiful and sunny Scottsdale, Arizona. And today, we've got some serious news to attend to. We're going over to the mind map to get our bearings straight. And as you can see, we've got three segments that we're going to dive into. The first one is some news that was sort of percolating late last week on Friday. Donald Trump and some new filings in the special master case. And so we are going to go through that in detail. Let's open this up and see what we've got on the deck. You can see we've got a docket update. And then there's going to be three different motions that we're going to be going through. Three things are quite important here. The first is the joint filing. This is the special master actual sort of uh, <clears throat> agreement that the defense and the government are submitting before the judge, and the judge will take a look at those documents and then make a decision. But we're also going to look at these two additional filings that we spent a ton of time on last week, which is, number one, Trump and his response to the motion for the stay. And so we'll unpack all of that. But he also is objecting to some of the special masters who were uh, suggested by the government. So we'll take a look at that. And then that's really going to take up a big bulk of time because there's about 40, 50 pages there. But we are going to go through it. And as usual, we will keep it interesting and fast paced. But we also have some other Trump news making its way around the uh, interwebs these days. And Trump made a surprise appearance over there in Washington, D.C. And so that's sort of causing everybody to go, what? And uh, people, in fact, over at Newsweek and elsewhere were saying, is Trump getting arrested right now? I mean, is that why he's over there in D.C.? Is he is he about to be uh, you know put in handcuffs by the FBI or what? And they're all sort of, you know, a lot of people freaking out about it. Turns out might just be golf. So we'll look at that. Also, last week, we missed sort of a skit over it was Trump versus Clinton. There was a lawsuit that Trump filed. In fact, Alina Abba sent it in. And Alina was uh, all over the, the media after the court dismissed the lawsuit. And we'll hear from her. And then we've got the MAGA raid. Remember last week we left off talking about the 35 raids that Steve Bannon said happened and everybody was like, oh yeah, really? Well, now apparently CBS and others have wind of exactly what's going on. Something like 30 confirmed people from Seth McFarland over at CBS. So we'll take a look at that saying that, yeah, a bunch of subpoenas went out. A bunch of individuals are now under the microscope over there, thanks to the FBI and the DOJ. So we'll take a look and explore uh, through all of that. Lots of clips. We've got several Trump clips. Trump is sort of floating, you know, potentially running now again, you know, very soon. Maybe that's why he's in DC. A lot of speculation. So we'll get into that. And then lastly, in our last segment, we're going to spend some time on Carrie Lake and the cowardly Katie Dobbs, who is still refusing to actually debate Carrie Lake, just says, I'm not going to do it, and uh, is causing a lot of people to raise their eyebrows about this one. So Katie Hobbs is officially declining any debate, and we had an interesting clip there from the Arizona Election Commissions. And, you know, I think this is going to be something that is sort of the canary in the coal mine, Arizona, in many ways, you know, is... If Arizona sort of becomes solid blue, solid blue, uh, maybe, you know, the rest of the country is not shortly behind. So we'll take a look at that and more, my friends. And so, as you can see, we just have a lot to get to today. Three big full segments. We have a little bit of heavy lifting to get to at the start of the show. But if you want to be a part of the broadcast, the best place to do that, of course, is over at watchingthewatchers.locals.com. You know where to sign up there. Also, you can sign up on YouTube. 
clicking that join button and joining up there. There's a bunch of people chatting away over there. And normally I spend time talking about the members and sort of the member community. But today I want to share with you an invitation, if you are sort of an appropriate individual for this, to come join us on this Thursday, September 15th at 1 p.m., for my very first sort of webinar where I'm communicating, hopefully, some good ideas to other lawyers and other small business owners who can use some of the things that I've learned in my YouTube career and my small business career in their own businesses and their own practices. And so I'm going to be hosting a webinar about an hour with some time for questions this Thursday, 1 p.m. Eastern. And if you want to uh, join us over there, it's at YouTube. It's at ytclientcashmachinemasterclass.com. Big mouthful. Big, big mouthful of there, but it's, uh, this is the thing, you know, many of you have been sort of following along. I've been working with a coach and she's helping me sort of, uh, sort of systematize my knowledge and help other people with it. So ytclientcashmachinemasterclass.com if you want to go check that out. So that's going to be taking place this Thursday. Be forewarned, there is going to be a big fat sales pitch at the end of it, okay, for lawyers and law firms. So just be, for, be, be prepared for that, but come check that out. If you want to come and join us, yeah, Zach, 1 p.m. Eastern is going to be the time. YT Client Cash Machine Masterclass. Zach Nichols, tomorrow, uh, Jason on Blast is over there. Um, he says, won't be there. Oh, man, have a, has a root canal? Oh, that sounds not good. All right, Bonnie Speck's in the house. Shout out to Bonnie. Jason on Blast. Savvy Sue is here. Rye T is over there. Says, waiting for Rob to give us a shout out over here. Nice and nice and patiently chatting away. JC, the music man. Zach Nichols. Tricky is in the house. Savvy Sue, B Speck, and many others chatting away over on Locals. And so uh, go, go join us over there watching the watchers.locals.com. Check out YT Client Cash Machine Masterclass.com. And uh, of course, YouTube memberships. I am a lawyer. RNR Law Group, 480 787 If you want to come check out the firm and some of the work that we do and uh, of course, I'll talk a lot more about that on Thursday if you want to come check that out. All right. And so with all that out of the way, thank you for indulging me on some of that. Uh, let's get into the real big meat and potatoes, the news of the day, which is special master business. All right. So Donald Trump and his defense team now objecting to several proposed special masters submitted by government prosecutors. We've got a pretty big, hefty docket update and several motions that we're going to take a look at here today. The big one that we sort of left off on the last time we talked about the docket update in this Trump case was about the special master. And remember, the judge came out and said to both sides, I want to know what you think the special master should do. And I want to know what you think the special master should do. And you guys come to an agreement, put them together and let me know. And that's essentially what happened here. So that's going to be the first joint filing that we look at. But then Trump is also simultaneously objecting to several efforts by the government. Remember that Donald Trump talked about that there was a motion to stay the appointment of the special master that the government filed. Trump responded to that. It's 21 pages. We'll look at that. And Trump is also objecting to several sort of suggestions that the government proffered that they think would be a good special master. And so we'll go through all three of these. Now, starting at the top, this is the docket. You can see we did a refresh before, before the show started. We've got several filings today, the 12th, the response filed by Christopher Kesey. He's the same lawyer, the newest edition to Trump's team. And then we also have this that was filed on September 9th. So that was on Friday. This was the government's response along with Trump's filing, the joint filing. And so both of those came out on Friday. Let's take a look at these a little bit closer in more detail. 
This document filed September 12th. You can see it's 21 pages long. Donald Trump versus the United States of America. And this is Trump's... No, actually, let's not start here. Let's start here. This is the joint filing. Yeah, let's start here today. This is the joint filing. Donald Trump versus the United States of America. The government prosecutors and Trump's defense team are coming together and they have this joint filing about the appointment of the special master. And remember, previously, the judge said, you guys get together and mash your heads and see what comes out of there. And they're filing this after that meeting. They said, okay, judge, look, in compliance with your orders, we actually did get together September 7th through September 9th. Wonder what those meetings are like, huh? And here's what we've got for you, judge. We've got a list of proposed special master candidates. We've got attachments of each party's detailed proposed order of appointment. And we've got substantive points that we're able to agree on and other issues that we're not able to agree on. Kind of covers the whole, all the bases there. So they start and they tell us, all right, well, here's who the government proposes. The government proposes two candidates and Trump proposes two candidates. The government received the plaintiff's proposed candidates shortly after 6 p.m. on the date of this filing. The government and the plaintiff will advise the court about their respective positions on the candidates on Monday, September 12th. And so we're going to take a look at Trump, Trump's filings objecting to those, and we'll see what the prosecutors look like another time. But here it says the government's proposed candidates. They tell us that they want this woman, Honorable Barbara S. Jones, retired, retired judge out of the Southern District of New York, partner in some LLP, and was already a special master, so she's got some experience. They also talk about this retired circuit court judge. His name is Thomas, also out of the D.C. circuit court. And, oh, he's a lecturer at Harvard. Great. So strike that guy for sure. Now, Trump's candidates are the Honorable Raymond Deary. Sounds like a very nice gentleman. Former chief judge of the United States District Court for the Eastern District of New York. Served on the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. Formerly the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of New York. We also have Paul Huck Jr., founder of the Huck Law Firm, former general counsel to the governor, governor and somebody over there in the state of Florida. Now, so you've got these four candidates. And if you actually go over, there are other sort of uh, synopses that have been drafted up by other entities. So, for example, the Epoch Times is one agent or is one organization that tells us a little bit more about these people. So, for example, they tell us about Raymond for Trump's suggestion. They say Raymond began his federal service 1986. He was nominated by Ronald Reagan, confirmed by the Senate. He then became the court's chief judge. He had uh, handled a reduced caseload after he took senior status and so on. Also served on the foreign intelligence. So you can see who these people are right now. Let's see who one of the prosecutors are. These are Trump's choices, DOJ's choices. We have their first nominee was appointed by Bill Clinton, right? Barbara Jones presided over a wide range of cases, retired 2013 before she became judge. She was an assistant. And she was a special master in previous cases, one of them involving Rudy Giuliani, right? So you, you sort of see the types of people that we're talking about, former judges, former experienced individuals. I don't want to belabor this because it's not all that interesting, but there are things that we will see that they're going to argue over as they come in from Trump's objection. So that's the people. Now, the people that are floating around, the names are very important, but also the scope. What are they going to be talking about? What's allowed? What's not allowed? And so then we get into this section. Areas of substantive agreement. So Trump says, I'm good with this. Government prosecutors say they're good with this. 
The headings are as follows, reporting and judicial review. They agree on reducing the default 21-day review period. So, to, you know, re reduce the time from 21 days to 10 days, right? So they'll typically say a special master, that person has 21 days to do all this stuff. They say that's way too long. 10 days is good. Good with you. Good with us. All right. Now, they, they, you can see this section is mm, uh, pretty uh, short, pretty small. So we have, uh, you can see here, page two. We got one, two, three, four sentences or four lines, really. Areas of agreement, five, six lines. And then we get seven, eight lines, and then we get areas of disagreement. Oh, yeah. So uh, this is going to go on for the rest of the document. <laughs> so they don't agree on anything. So let's start at the top. Now, they do agree that the special master may request the assistance of other people. Okay, so the special master can say, we need you and we need you to look at this. And they can go outside of the scope and go find other people. But that's about it. Okay, they agree this should go quickly. And they agree that the special master should have help. That's about it. Then we get to what they disagree about. Areas of substantive disagreement between the parties. They say, here are the substantive differences here, Judge. The parties... And their more detailed protocols set forth are, are listed out below. The government plans to make available to plaintiff copies of all this stuff. And they also say the government will return to plaintiff. So Trump is going to be getting back his personal items that were not commingled with records bearing classification markings. Footnote two, the government notes that such property was within the scope of what the search warrant authorized, right? They're saying, look, we got your passports. We got all this other stuff. We know that we don't need it. We know that we probably shouldn't have taken it. but we're not saying that we shouldn't have taken it, admitting any fault or any wrongdoing. We could have taken anything because they could have, right? Because everything, the, the search warrant was so gigantically broad. They also tell us that duties and limitations, they have disagreements about this. The plaintiff's position, so Trump's position, is that the special master should review all the seized materials, including documents with classification markings. Trump wants them to look at everything. Trump also says that the special master should examine the documents to evaluate executive privilege claims. Look at, at privilege and look at confidential. Remember, these two things were big issues for us. The plaintiff does not believe, so Trump does not believe that the special master should or even have to consult with NARA, with the National Archives. So put them on their own. They don't have to go out there and commingle with NARA at all. To the extent that the special master determines such a need, Trump says the parties could be heard by the special master and this court before that step is taken. So Trump wants to sort of cordon off the special master, right? Don't let the special master go over to NARA and communicate. Now, the government says, well, the special master should not review those classified documents. You know, they should not adjudicate any claims of executive privilege. And they should submit to NARA any documents over which those claims are made. And they should consult with NARA on all the presidential records at all, right? So it's like the exact opposite of everything. The parties, writes the, the joint parties, they say the parties generally agree on the categories of documents into which the materials to be reviewed should be allocated. But Trump originally identified five categories and the government four. The difference is only because they want separate, they separated personal items from personal documents. Okay, so uh, Trump had one additional category because he said personal items are different than personal documents and, you know, you can't put them in the same category. The government combines those two and then they assess executive privilege accordingly. Now, Trump believes that the government and their objection to the special master reviewing the documents is misplaced, right? So this is Trump's people speaking. They say, judge, 
the government incorrectly presumes the outcome, right? They say that their separation of these documents is inviolable. Second, their stance wrongly assumes that if a government, if a document had classification markings, it remains classified in perpetuity. That's not true, they say. And third, the government continues to ignore the significance of the Presidential Records Act. If any seized document is a presidential record, plaintiff has an absolute right of access to it, while access by others, including those in the executive branch, have specified limitations. Thus, they say, Trump or his designee cannot be denied access to those documents, which in this matter gives legal authorization to the special master to take a look at those documents. Footnote three. And they say Trump anticipates filing a deeper analysis of these issues in the upcoming filing. So we're not done with this one there, Judge. Now, the principal difference, writes both sides, in the party's workflow is that Trump sends materials categorized by his lawyers directly to the special master, whereas the government proposes that it review the plain Trump's categorization by logs to determine if they disagree or disagree with the categorization. Okay, so it's all sort of technical. How is this going to go? Does it go from Trump's people to the special master? Does it go from the special master to the prosecutor, then to Trump? How does all this interface? That's what they're talking about. Now, they continue on. They talk about compensation. Trump says that they should evenly split the fees. It's going to be a lot of work, a lot of money on this thing. Think about this lawyer, this retired lawyer with all this, you know, litany of experience and FISA, this, that, and the other. They're probably billing, you know, a lot. So who's going to pay for all this? Well, Trump is like, well, well, I mean, you know, government is prosecuting me. Maybe they should pay for it all, but we'll split it evenly. The uh, professional fees and also the expenses of all of the expert consultants. Why don't we just split it? It sounds fair. It's like, it's like going to lunch, but the government, because they hate Trump says at the party requesting as the party requesting the special master plaintiff should bear the additional expenses. Okay. So Trump should pay for it. You asked for it. You asked us out to lunch. So you're buying. And, you know, obviously they want to make him pay for it because it is one more tool that they can use to sort of bleed him dry of money. But number four, now they talk about the deadline. Okay, so the schedule for the review. The government wants a deadline of reviewing all of these documents by the end of October 17th, within which to complete the review process. But Trump says 90 days will be required given the volume of the documents. Okay, so fast forward 90 days from now, that's December. And they say, that's a lot of documents, but they say, you know, we're up to it. We're, we, can, we can have a conversation about this. We defer to the court and to the special master, not in any hurry either way. And so the parties now say, well, judge, we're available, right? This is our uh, brief. Uh, the government wants all these things. Trump wants all those things. Pretty big disagreements as to most of this stuff, right? In addition to uh, whether a special master should even be appointed at all, they are fighting about what the special master can do. The government says no conversations or determinations about executive privilege and no discussions about or even a review of any documents that are deemed confidential or have the classification markings. So the government trying very, very hard to stop any oversight at every step. And we'll continue to see where this goes. But this is the joint filing and the judge will issue a response at some point and we'll continue to cover that. There's more filings. In addition, actually, let's start with here. Let's start here. Donald Trump is also objecting to several of the proposed special masters submitted by the government prosecutors. Three-page document. You can see Donald Trump versus the United States of America. Trump's supplemental pleading about the special master nominations. And so we just saw that the prosecutors submitted two people, retired judges. You know, not all that sort of 
interesting in terms of uh, being standout, you know, individuals, but they're very qualified because they've got all of this experience and retired years of practice in law. Many have special security clearances, have acted out as special masters before. And so they're, they're just, you know, very qualified people. But Trump is now objecting to several of those people. He writes, on September 9th, the government and us, we submitted the joint filing. In that submission, we indicated to the court our position on each other's candidates would be provided by September 12th. That day is today. Plaintiff objects, meaning Trump is saying, we do not think that these proposed nominees from the DOJ are appropriate. Trump says there are specific reasons why those nominees are not preferred for the special master in this case. Now, they write, as the court said in previous orders, that they required a list of proposed special master candidates, but not, did not specify whether that is to include specific advocacy as to why certain nominees are or are not suitable to serve a special master. They say Trump has construed that order in a limited fashion. So they're saying, Judge, you told us that you want sort of opinions on all this stuff. I don't know exactly how you want it, but here's what I'm going to be doing. I'm just going to submit this separately because I want to be a little bit more respectful to the candidates. They say, uh, Trump also submits, we're saying that, Judge, it's more respectful to the candidates from either party to withhold the bases for opposition from a public and likely to be widely circulated pleading. Therefore, they're saying Trump asks this court for permission to specifically express our objections to the nominees only at such time that the court specifies a desire to obtain and consider that information. Right. And what they're saying, you know, before we move on, they're saying, judge, we think that these two candidates that you just saw are very, very problematic. Right. But we're not going to blast the heck out of them in these public filings. Right. We're just going to go ahead and let you know very politely, just like a little tap on the shoulder. We object to these candidates. But there is more to the objection. Joe, we're gonna say this guy's a loser and he does this and he, you know, he cheats at cards and he also doesn't eat right. And, you know, he drinks 37 Coca-Colas a day and all of these things. But if they put it all out there on the public docket, then everybody's going to see that. And they're going to, can you believe what Rob does? That's man, he's a loser, isn't he? And they don't want to do that. And so they're saying, judge, you know, look, can we just file this stuff separately? They say such information could be provided to the court in camera, meaning we could actually show you judge sort of off the record behind closed doors or pursuant to whatever procedure the court deems efficient and appropriate. Consistent with that approach, judge Trump is willing to provide our specific rationale for supporting our nominees if and when the court deems appropriate. All right. So very polite, very nice, very gentlemanly. Well done there. Christopher Kesey, Trump lawyer saying, you know, these guys are going to kind of be a big problem, Judge, but we can talk about it behind closed doors. You just let us know when you're ready. And then we'll blast them and tell you how incompetent and how big of losers they are. We also have another filing from this case. Previously, the government prosecutors said that they do not want a special master appointed. Now, the judge came out and said, that's too bad. I'm appointing one. And the prosecutors responded. They said, well, if that's the case, we're going to appeal this. We're going to take it up, judge, and you're going to come back and you're going to be in trouble. And they said, while that case is on appeal, judge, we're asking for a stay of your original order. Remember, the judge said special master's coming in hot. Stop what you're doing. They're saying, judge, hold on. You're going to about to be appealed. You're about to be overruled. And so while all of that is pending, 
why don't we just go back to the way things were? Why don't you stay your special master motion and let us get back to work? And they filed that motion and we read through it in detail. It was 20 something pages long. This is Donald Trump's response to the prosecutor's motion for a stay. Trump is objecting, saying, no, you already issued your special master order. So don't undo that. 21 pages, Trump versus the United States. This is Trump's response in opposition to the United States motion for a partial stay pending the appeal. Trump's defense team writes, this investigation of the 45th president of the United States is both unprecedented and misguided. In what at its core is a document storage dispute that has spiraled out of control, the government wrongfully seeks to criminalize the possession by the 45th president of his own presidential and personal records. By way of its motion, the government now seeks to limit the scope of any review of its investigative conduct and presuppose the outcome, at least regards to what it deems are classified records, right? We're debating that. What are classified records? The government says, well, everything is, even your napkins. But Trump says, no, they're not. And so they want you to presuppose. They're saying this is ridiculous. Trump's defense team says the court's order is a sensible preliminary step towards restoring order from chaos. The government should therefore not be permitted to skip this process and proceed straight to a preordained conclusion. Right? If they judge, they're saying, judge, if you appoint a special master and then you gut the special master duties, what's the point? And they're making debates about these classified records. We haven't litigated those issues yet. Trump's defense team says, they write, they reference this note from the court filing. They say the government's request with regard to this court order is twofold. Specifically, the government seeks a stay to the extent the order enjoins further review or use of the documents. And they also don't want the government to disclose those documents to the special master. So they're saying, stop both of those things. Now, Trump's defense is responding. He's saying accordingly, Your Honor, this request to stop those two things demonstrates the government has misinterpreted the order as a prohibition on conducting a national security assessment. That reading, however, is misplaced as the court order made clear that any such assessment may proceed. And they're right about that. Remember the ODNI? They were going to conduct the parallel review at the same time that the special master was coming in. It was a simultaneous analysis. And the judge said, okay, national security damage assessment. You can continue, but not this one. Now, the government, they write, generally points to the alleged urgent need to conduct a risk assessment, saying that if there was unauthorized disclosure of the classified records, we're all going to die. But the, prosecu the, the Trump defense, they write, but there is no indication any purported classified records were disclosed to anyone. Indeed, it appears that the classified records, along with other such seized materials, were principally located in storage boxes in a locked room at Mar-a-Lago so in a secure, controlled access compound utilized regularly to conduct the official business of the United States during the Trump presidency, which to this day is monitored by the United States Secret Service. This point we've made many times here. All of these people coming out, Anderson Cooper and Bill Barr, and they're sitting around there on these media shows and they're like, well, Donald Trump took documents to a resort in Florida. What a monster. Can you believe that? A resort in Florida. And we're sitting here going, 
Uh, he was uh, down there all the time when he was the president. So it was okay back then for him to bring a briefcase down there, but now it's not, even though he's got continuing security clearances and secret service protection and all of the benefits of an ex-president. Ridiculous. And it's still secured by the secret service. And it sounds like they're even the, it's even the same room, right? Controlled access compound utilized regularly to conduct the official business of the United States during the Trump presidency. It's the same room. So it was secure enough for the presidency, and now it's all of a sudden, it's like, like a beach closet, like there's beach towels in there or something, right? It's a bunch of old uh, uh, suntan lotion. Is this expired, honey? I don't know. They write, moreover, Judge, the ultimate disposition of the, quote, classified records that they say is everything, and likely most of the seized materials, is indisputably governed exclusively by the provisions of the Presidential Records Act. And the PRA accords the, any president extraordinary discretion to categorize all his or her records as either presidential or personal records. And we've talked about this. This is the Clinton sock drawer case that Judge Amy Berman ruled on back when Judicial Watch sued them for Clinton records. And he just said, oh, well, they're not presidential records. They're personal records. So we're good. And established case law provides for that and for very limited judicial oversight over such a categorization. Because otherwise, the judge is more powerful than the president. The judge gets to decide, no, those aren't presidential records, or those aren't personal records. Those are these. Those are those. And these are those. Completely unenforceable. It's a separation of powers issue. Now you have a judge who says, oh, sorry, Mr. President, uh, you're going to jail now because I say that those in your sock drawer are different. It's ridiculous. And it's obvious when it's their person in charge, when it's President Clinton, they come out and they love it. Oh, no, we have to uh, make sure most uh, reverence is uh, the most powerful man in the country. You know? All that crap. But if it's Trump, they're like, no, those are our library books now. Those are, no, he's the president. He has the right to declassify, the right to declare them personal records versus presidential records. And up until this year, all of this was pretty established. Trump's defense says, the Presidential Records Act further contains no provision authorizing or allowing any criminal enforcement at all, which includes raids. Rather, disputes regarding the disposition of presidential records are resolved between the president and the National Archives. Thus, at best, the government might ultimately be able to establish certain presidential records should be returned to NARA. What is clear, like at best, okay, at best, things go back over there. You don't raid the, the house. What is clear regarding all of the seized materials is that they belong with either Trump as his personal property or returned with NARA, but not with the Department of Justice, right? They had no right to come in there and seize any of that stuff. The law says so. They write, however, it is not even possible for this court or anyone else for that matter to make any determination as to which documents and other items belong where and with whom without first conducting a thoughtful, organized review. You can't know what should go in what bucket until you have a plan and do it thoughtfully. Recognizing this, they say, the court exercised, in this case, its equitable jurisdiction and its inherent supervisory authority to ensure that there was at least the appearance of fairness. At least the appearance is what the judge said like three times in her original order saying there's all sorts of problems in this case, you, DOJ, would be well-served with at least the appearance of fairness because it doesn't look like that way to me. Saying these are extraordinary circumstances and we have to ensure the integrity of what's happening. 
Trump's defense says the government now advances the same arguments previously rejected in a new attempt to persuade the court. And for several reasons, the government has not demonstrated it's entitled to any relief. Now, this carries on. It tells us the government position incorrectly presumes the outcome, saying that these documents is a key issue. And so we're going to fast forward through a lot of this. You can see we're going to get into some heavy lifting where they're referencing the applicable law and all of the different case law, 1926. They say Trump's going to succeed on the merits. And we we really went through this in detail at the, at the last time reviewing the government's original filing. And so basically this is responding to each one of those points. And to summarize, remember the, the government was saying this court doesn't have any equitable jurisdiction and a special master is not needed. And none of these things apply. And Trump is just responding, saying the appointment of a special master is in fact necessary. Yeah, it is a prudent step to preserve the integrity of the process. You know, the DOJ thinks that everything they do is all above board and everything's just completely perfect. That's not the case. Trump's defense says this court has provided more than adequate reasoning as to why a special master is needed to further review the documents are in question here. They say a special master is not an agent for President Trump or the government. The very purpose of a special master is to be a neutral third party. But they're melting down over this with the appropriate authorization reviewing documents to facilitate the resolution of the disagreements. In opposing any neutral review of the seized materials, the government seeks to block a reasonable first step towards restoring order from chaos and increasing public confidence in the integrity of the process. The government writes Trump's team also continues to assert that Trump is not permitted to claim executive privilege over any of the documents that they have in custody. And they say, judge, though, you know, you've already expressed skepticism about this argument and you wrote about that in your prior order. And so, Judge, with all of this in mind, it is appropriate that in these unprecedented circumstances to appoint a third party arbiter. Subsection C, they say that Trump, Trump has the power to declassify documents. And they're going back to that 1988 case, Navy versus Egan, which we've already talked about. Spent a lot of time on that one. President Obama enacted certain executive orders, they tell us. And a former president in another subsection has the unfettered right to access those presidential records, again, referencing the Presidential Records Act, distinguishing between presidential and personal records. And here in the PRA, it tells us presidential records are defined as anything sort of taking place in in the duties of the president. But personal records are defined as this, documentary materials or anything that is a reasonably segregable portion thereof. Anything, right? Broad category. Uh, Anything of a purely private, non-public character do not relate, have an effect upon carrying out the the constitutional, statutory, or other official or ceremonial duties of the president. Basically, this is meaning that if, if one president is outgoing, you can't take the library books that the incoming president needs, right? Like if you have something that, you know, like if you're out there with certain equipment and you're leaving the job site and somebody else comes onto that job site, they're going to need that equipment. If you take that equipment with them and they need it back, this is saying there are provisions that say that that is, that is sort of outside the scope of what they're talking about here. And so they tell us the presidential records act distinguishes presidential records from personal records. And there's, you know, here's a bullet, a bolded statement here. The categorization of the records during the presidency 
controls what happens next. They say the statute assigns the archivist no role with respect to personal records once the presidency concludes. There's no jurisdiction over any of this. The PRA contains no provision obligating or even permitting the archivist to assume control over those records. At the conclusion of the president's term, these are the only things that they can do. And they're referencing the President Clinton case right here. This quote comes from that Clinton sock drawer case, 2012, Judicial Watch versus National Archives. The judge writing in that case, the PRA does not confer any mandatory or even any discretionary authority on the archivist to classify records. Under the statute, the responsibility is left solely to the president. They say critically, Trump has the sole discretion to classify a record and and make a determination whether it's personal or presidential, citing the case law that we've already read through here. They continue. They say the government's not going to suffer any harm. Judge, if you appoint a special master, there's not going to be any problems with any of this stuff. They say that we're all going to die. Our eyeballs are going to melt out of our sockets if just somebody comes and holds their hand as they're rummaging through Melania's materials. But Trump says that's not true. They're not going to suffer any irreparable harm. It's ridiculous. The government ignores the distinction between different categories, saying they're looking backwards, not looking forwards, saying there, yes, there are circumstances where national security is important, but the court's order is already allowing the ODNI to go and review this stuff. The order does not prohibit the FBI from participating in the assessment. Thus, the government's concern that the FBI is prohibited from evaluating anything is unfounded. Judge, you carved out an exception for this stuff. So just stick with that. The operative language in the injunction is purpose. If an action's purpose is for national security, they can do it. If it's for criminal investigation, they can't do it. Easy. Just bifurcate the two. But they can't conflate the two together. And so they continue on. They say a brief delay is not going to cause irreparable harm to the government's investigation. Okay, they're not, they're going to be just fine. These documents sat around in Mar-a-Lago for almost two years. And there's not a meltdown. So just hold your horses over there. President Trump and the public would be harmed by the stay, right? Now we're flipping this around. Well, judge, it may, the government says it's going to hurt them. We disagree. But if you do not appoint the special master, it is definitely going to hurt, hurt Trump and it's definitely going to hurt the public. And they say, judge, as you already pointed out, brilliant, by the way, incredible observation. They say, as this court correctly observed, a criminal investigation of this import, okay, an investigation of the former president of the United States by the administration of his political rival requires enhanced vigilance to ensure fairness, transparency, and maintenance of the public trust. They're referencing the judge. They say, judge, you said the investigation of a treatment of a former president is of a unique interest to the public, and the country is served best by an orderly process that promotes interest and the perception of fairness. They write, as noted above, neither leaks nor the prospect of a public jury trial appear to raise any concerns about irreparable harm. Apparently, the only the secure review by a court-appointed and supervised special master is a risk to national security. Do you see that there? That's a little needle from Trump's defense team. They're saying, yeah, judge, you know, this is very curious here. Um, uh, you know, they are 
potentially charging Trump with a crime. And if that happens, I've uh, got grand juries involved. You've got all sorts of you know, people prosecuting the crimes, but then you've got all of the agents involved. And then it goes to a jury trial where all of this material is going to be presented to everybody. And the government's not concerned about any of those other people. They're not worried about any of that. They're worried about some special master who's got all of this, these credentials, who's like, you know, retired and, you know, like been to the Super Bowl of law. You're concerned about them, but not all these jurors. Well, that's weird. They're saying that doesn't make any sense. So they say, given the significance of this investigation, judge, the court recognizes, as does Trump, that this must be conducted in public view. The court has correctly directed the commencement of a process which certainly benefits the government. President Trump and the people of the United States, the plaintiff here, Trump, respectfully submits that any stay of the injunction or any limitation on the scope of the review judge that you already ordered only serves to erode public trust and the perception of fairness. So judge, don't undo what you've already done. For the foregoing reasons, plaintiff respectfully requests the court deny the government's motion and, uh, and allow the special master to get in there and do his or her job. Christopher Kesey, Lindsey Halligan, Evan Corcoran, James Trustee, all counsel for Donald Trump. And so the judge, of course, will issue a ruling. And let's, while we're here, let's do a quick refresh and see if the government submitted their Yes, they did, actually. The government submitted their response. Let's take a quick look at this. And this one is four pages. So remember, Trump already objected to both of the candidates. The government responded. They said, the United States notice respecting the court's appointment of a special master. They say, we know that we're supposed to get this due to you by September 12th. In accordance with the representation, the government hereby tells the court, they say the government submits the court should select one of the following three proposed candidates. Barbara Jones, which was theirs, Thomas Griffith, which was theirs, and the Honorable Raymond Deary. They say Judge Jones, Griffith, and Deary, they've got judicial experience. The government respectfully opposes Paul Huck, who does not appear to have the same experience. So the government understands that three candidates with prior judicial experience also employ staff who could help with some of this work. In selecting among the three, the government respectfully requests the court consider and select the candidate best performing, uh, best suitable to perform the job. Okay, so I think what that probably means is that this is an agreed upon individual. So I'm going to guess that if the judge is uh, listening to the parties, that the special master is going to be this guy, Honorable Raymond J. Deary. This was somebody who was proposed by Trump. Trump objected to both of the proposed candidates by the government, and the government did not object to both of Trump's candidates. They only objected to one. So it sounds like they both agree on the Honorable Raymond J. Deary, which sounds like a very nice gentleman. Sounds like a deer of a man. And so we'll continue to cover that. Now we'll see what the judge says. That came over from the official court docket, and so there's no new orders or rulings from the court today, but we will come back and cover those when they are revealed. And so those are the three big updates on the Trump docket, and we will continue to cover this case. So do not forget to subscribe and hit that like button as we continue to do so. Meanwhile, Donald Trump news as he makes a very interesting surprise visit over to Washington, D.C., 
Donald Trump raising eyebrows as he lands in Washington, D.C., causing people all over the place to wonder, what is he doing there? Many people on the left saying, uh-oh, is he getting arrested? Other people on the right just saying, well, maybe he's just golfing. Maybe he's just, you know, kind of traveling around. It is summer after all. And so Donald Trump, as you can see in this very nice animated GIF, that he was apparently walking out of an airplane that looks just like that. And this was raising eyebrows all over the place. And so you can see him coming out of the tarmac. Yeah, that's Donald, all right. What's he doing in Washington, everybody was saying. And some people over at Newsweek were saying, uh-oh, this is it. The time has finally come. Newsweek asking and reporting saying Donald Trump's surprise visit to Washington sparks arrest speculation. This is it. It's finally going to happen. They've been waiting six years now. And finally, it's going to happen. He's going to end up in handcuffs. They wrote this. They said Donald Trump made a surprise unannounced visit to Washington on Sunday, prompting speculation and rumors about the reason for the trip. There was a video that we just showed you. Former president can be seen getting out of an airplane, heading onto a vehicle, a motorcade of vehicles, then flew off, suggesting he was on his way to a golf course. But they say Trump, you know, he's only visited D.C. one time since he left the White House. And he made no mention of the trip over there on True Social. And so what's he doing there? A lot of theories were being shared all over the place. Some saying, oh, he's in there because he can, he's about to be arrested. He's going over to the DOJ. Or that he might be visiting Walter Reed for health reasons. What's he doing? Saying he faces a number of indictments and all sorts of stuff, right? So this was spreading all over the place, all over the airwaves, all over Twitter and elsewhere. And uh, people were sort of posting things like this. Very fun little tweet came over from this gentleman. His name is Alex Salvi. He said, uh, 50% of my feed is people on the left saying Trump is turning himself into the FBI. 50% of my feed is people on the right saying Trump is being reinstated as president. <laughs> he said, 100% of my feed is completely insane, which is, you know, it's funny. Everyone, what the heck is he doing? But the point behind all of this is that everybody is still fixated on Trump. What is Donald Trump doing? Where is he going? What is all of this about? So here was the actual footage of Trump deboarding the plane. Trump landing in D.C., turning a bunch of heads in a surprise visit. There he is. Are there any boxes? He didn't have any boxes. Is that a confidential hat? I think that might have been the invisible confidential boxes that they were talking about. Remember, Alina Abba said that these people were walking around with invisible documents and the FBI with their Lego sets and things. So... Well, we'll see what they're finding, but Donald Trump does land and a lot of people asking, is this because he's going to be arrested or maybe he's just playing golf, which it is probably that. As the speculation continues about why Trump is in D.C., some journalist, some reporter sort of got a telephoto lens here. You see sort of ultra grainy. It looks like it's a potato, but it's because it's super photo telephoto. And it looks like Trump is just out on the golf course. So unless those are FBI agents, I think he's just golfing. And a lot of people are uh, very interested. As you can see, here's a minute and a half of some journalist who captured all of this. And those are golf court carts and they look like golf clubs. And I think he's, in fact, waving over there to the media a little bit. Ultra zoomed in. Oh, there he is. I wonder how he's playing today. 
and this like the, this was literally what a big portion of Twitter was all about today. We saw people like this saying, finally, we got it confirmed. Finally, it's confirmed. Greg Grumbach said, former President Trump now finally at his Sterling, Virginia golf course today, per the AP's Alex Brandon. There he is. Just driving around. Don't know what's, it's probably breaking clavicles all over the place. And I don't see any podiums there. Any podiums or nuclear bombs attached? I don't see anything, and no. But you never know. Probably insurrecting something, probably his own golf course. So, all right, well, that's Donald Trump. Now, Trump ultimately responded to where he was over on True Social. He said, I'm working today. Quit with the hysteria. Says, I'm working today at Trump, Washington, D.C. On the Potomac River. What an incredible place. TrumpNationalDC.com. Come stay for a while. So uh, that's probably all it's about. But Trump was also out making some statements. He was saying things to big groups of people about taking back the White House. And we will take a look at that. But one thing that we want to make sure we don't gloss over is Donald Trump and his defense lawyers filed a lawsuit against Hillary Clinton. And that lawsuit was dismissed. Now, we're going to hear from Alina Abba about why it was dismissed and what her opinion is on it. But here is what the Epoch Times has for us. They say the court throws out a Trump lawsuit against Clinton and Comey and everybody else. And remember, we covered this lawsuit a long time ago. Huge litany of a a bunch of named defendants brought under the RICO statutes. And it was ultimately thrown out. It said here on September 8th, judge threw it out. Trump sued Clinton, everybody else, Christopher Steele, and a bunch of named defendants under the RICO Act. In an amended complaint, all of this went all the way up. And we saw from Judge Donald Middlebrooks, who is a Bill Clinton appointee, saying that this complaint, quote, does not establish that Trump is entitled to any relief and that claims here are not warranted under any existing law. Judge says there are problems, glaring problems. There are many others, but these are emblematic of the audacity of Trump's legal theories and the manner in which they clearly contravene binding case law, right? That's like not uh, uh, good language to hear from a judge. It's like, it's kind of like you're an idiot. Saying, saying here, first, the amended complaint answer lacks the predicate RICO offenses. And there was another predicate offense, wire fraud, and saying that you have basically failed in every way, shape, and form. Now, He dismissed the complaint without prejudice, meaning it can be refiled. And Alina Abba, of course, was out communicating her position on some of this. And so let's check in with her and see what she has to say about it. Now, Alina Abba is going to be commenting on the lawsuit that she filed that was recently dismissed. And she's going to be explaining that this comes from a biased judge. You know, this is Judge Middlebrooks, who is somebody who is uh, not going to be ruling in their favor. And Alina says... Donald Trump told me, pull it at some point, saying this is a losing cause. If you have a biased judge, how can you possibly win your case? You can file all the motions in the world. You can make your arguments many, many times. But if a judge refuses to recuse themselves, if a judge is biased, they're going to find against you. This is Alina Abba, Donald Trump's defense lawyer, explaining accordingly. 
You know, I have to share with you a story, Sean, that I have not shared with anybody. I, the, the recourse that I have at this point is obviously to appeal this to the um, 11th Circuit, as, as Greg said. But when I brought this case and we were assigned, you know, this judge and we went through the recusal process, we lost five magistrates, including Reinhardt, who's dealing with the boxes, as we know. Um, the former president looked at me and, and he told me, you know what, Alina, you're not going to win. You can't win. Just get rid of it don't do the case. And I said, no, we have to fight. It's not right what happened. And you know, he was right. And it's a sad day for me personally, because I, I fought him on it and I should have listened, but I don't want to lose hope in our system. I don't. So, you know, I, I'm deciding whether we're going to appeal it. But I, I got to tell you, Sean, it's hard when you're looking at what's happening in these in this justice system. So I don't think that she ultimately will appeal it. I think that there's probably a good reason to let it go at this point because the judge has sort of communicated that there may be sanctions and there may be some other things. It may not have been a winning argument, but she certainly is sort of falling on the sword in many ways, giving Trump the benefit of the doubt saying Trump told you don't file this. Trump told you to let it go and you didn't. And so she's falling on the sword, right? This is an attorney saying, I actually encourage my client to sort of do something that maybe wasn't the best call should have listened to him. And so she's out in front of the media sort of eating it and excusing, I would say, Trump's judgment or Trump's role in the process by saying she encouraged it to happen. It wasn't a good decision. Trump had no real role in it. Should have listened to him and would have saved themselves a bunch of time. Here is Alina Abba again talking about recourse. How can you get any recourse in this country if the entire system is weaponized against political opponents. How can Donald Trump file any claim if every single judge in every court is just going to laugh him out of there? Here is Miss Abba. Because when you have a Clinton judge, as we did here, Judge Middlebrooks, who I had asked to recuse himself, but insisted that he didn't need to, he was going to be impartial. And then he proceeds to write a 65-page scathing order where he basically ignored every factual basis, which was backed up by indictments, by investigations, the Mueller report, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, not to mention Durham and all the testimony we heard there, we get dismissed. Not only do we get dismissed. We did hear a lot of testimony. We heard Durham. We heard Sussman. Well, Durham was Michael Sussman, but there's been many other prosecutions and many other um, investigations is the better word, but lots of evidence piling up and it all made its way in there. And for the judge to turn around and say there's zero evidence at all, she's saying is a little bit of a stretch. He says that this is not the proper place for recourse for Donald Trump. He has no legal ramifications. Where well, what is the proper place for him? Because Good the question. FBI won't help when you can do anything, obstruct justice, blatantly lie to the FBI. Sussman's out. He gets acquitted. Where do you go? That's that's the concern for me. Where do you get that that recourse? Yeah, the famous Where can you go if the entire system is weaponized and oriented to stop one political party in particular one po person from ever regaining power? Very difficult to find a favorable forum. So Miss Abba is asking the question, where do we go? What do we do? What's the strategy here? If no judge will give you the benefit of the doubt or even listen to your arguments, you're kind of in a difficult position. But maybe not. The Steve Bannon, Donald Trump defense thought for a while has been just win the White House again, just win power again, then you can solve all of these issues. You don't have to worry about beating your criminal case or beating a corrupt DOJ. Just go and run the DOJ. Just go win. And then it's yours. And then you can control it. 
And I'm pretty sure that's the strategy at this point. Here's Donald Trump speaking to a group of people at a dinner, and they're asking uh, questions. Many people wondering, why is Donald Trump out now speaking and doing these sessions in front of audiences? Is he maybe getting closer to announcing a run for president? And they're paying close attention to very careful language that he uses about taking back the White House. Here is Trump. There's no country that's a third world country that would allow to happen to them what's happening in our world. There's no country. There's no third world country. There's no country. So we have to get out and we have to win. And uh, we have to win in a very, very important year. It's called 2024. We have to take back the White House. There it is. We have to take back the White House. And, you know, there's a lot of that talk that happens at these types of events. And it's hard to parse out what that means exactly. Does it mean we, as in the Republican Party, as in MAGA Republicans, as in uh, Donald Trump? We? What does it mean? What's this we you're talking about here, Donald? We're not too sure about it. But that is one potential option. That is one avenue of recourse as Alina Abba is wondering, what can we do about this when everywhere we turn, the justice system seems to be looking the other way. One tactic, just win the White House. Just do what Steve Bannon says is going to happen. Take back control, reverse the levers of power, and then it's your turn. Donald Trump, of course, also asked a very interesting question. If he does run for the White House, who's he going to be thinking about for his vice president? Trump's VP, Contention is always up for debate. And on this program, we've talked about others like Carrie Lake and you know, maybe some other people. But a very interesting question came in that caught Trump by surprise. Ivanka, could Ivanka Trump be Donald Trump's vice president? What kind of a question is that? It's a weird idea. But somebody asked him about that and they were very serious. They're saying many people in the media are saying it might be a good idea. What do you think, Trump? What about the media buzz that Ivanka might be your running mate? Is there any substance? That, that Ivanka? Yes. That my daughter? Yes. I never thought of that one. I've never even heard of that it's, one. It's in the well, media. That's an interesting that's idea. It's, it's been in the media for a while. Really? I, that one I have not heard of. But, Maybe uh, in the media. She's a very capable person, that I can tell you. But uh, no, I have not heard that one. Would you consider it? No, I wouldn't. <laughs> not my daughter. No. No, not even close. Uh, no, I wouldn't. Not my daughter. And, you know, now I don't know why. I mean, maybe it's his daughter. Probably her politics. Is he disagreeable with her politics? But he says, uh, no, no, not even close. Not my daughter. No, not even going to think about that one. But thank you for asking about that. And of course, Donald Trump is getting closer maybe to announcing. I really don't know. People are speculating that maybe yes, because the midterms are coming up. And they're saying that he has to announce either immediately before or shortly thereafter or after the midterms. And if it's before, well, the clock is ticking on that one. And we also have the DOJ, which is saying that they don't indict people in the months leading up to an election, because if they do, it might sway an election. And their policy is more or less 60 days. We are inside of that 60 days. And so now we may be waiting a little bit further. But while we are watching the political prosecution of Donald Trump continue around America, we left off last week talking about Steve Bannon. Bannon came out and said that there were 35 raids or 35, let's say, interactions between the federal government and MAGA Republicans or deputies, allies of Donald Trump. And it's turning out to be true. There's a lot more evidence where this came from. Set, uh, Scott McFarlane 
over on Twitter says new via my teammates, more than 30 people associated with former President Trump and efforts to influence the 2020 results have received federal grand jury subpoenas. Four sources told CBS News. Four sources. Some subpoenas were issued in the last week. Let's go over to Scott McFarlane on Twitter. And he says, following, he says, this is a significant investigation and escalation in the investigation. Multiple sources tell CBS News the probe branches into fake electors and into money raised after the 2020 election. September 2022, January 6th grand jury steams ahead with increasing velocity. Legal battles continue into the Mar-a-Lago record, special master, and the U.S. House Select Committee expects its next public hearing and new revelations. We also have the Oath Keepers seditious conspiracy trial, and they're covering it all. And as you can see, the laundry list of prosecutions against political entities in this country continues. And as this continues to percolate, we'll continue to cover it. A lot more will be revealed as these subpoenas start to become public and more warrants and documents become unsealed. We will continue to follow it, certainly. Now, there are a lot of reactions to something that Donald Trump said previously about pardoning January Sixers. When he was on a radio show, he called in and he said, I actually am considering it. You know, there have been some travesties that have existed in the political prosecutions of many of the January 6 defendants. And it's inappropriate for people to be facing solitary confinement, for people to be incarcerated without bond for very, very minimal offenses. Okay. And one of them that we've talked about here was one of the seditious conspiracy charges was an assault on an officer for throwing a water bottle. It was the Oath Keepers or the Proud Boys, one of the two. I can never remember. Regardless, seditious conspiracy slash assault for what? Water bottle at an officer, right? And so you take a look at stuff like that and you say, that is not what we're talking about when we're talking about assaulting an officer. But Trump considering pardoning those individuals causing a lot of outrage or anger. Here is Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham is saying, absolutely no pardons for the J6ers. The Hill got this. He was speaking along with a bunch of other senators responding to Donald Trump saying, you know, I might actually grant some pardons here. Lindsey Graham came out and he said the following. He said, you know, Donald Trump doing that would be a bad idea. He says, pardons are given to people who admit misconduct, rehabilitate themselves. They're not supposed to be used for other purposes. Is that really... The, the situation here. Other Republican senators are joining Graham. You've got Kevin Kramer, a Republican, saying, no, it's not good. I don't think potential candidates should hold pardons out as a promise. I prefer avoiding those kind of things. Mike Round says the same thing. He doesn't support it either. Mitt Romney says, the January 6th riot was an attack on a temple of democracy, and the people who violated the law attacked our law enforcement and besmirched our nation's capital should be prosecuted according to the law and certainly should not be pardoned. <laughs> Oh, Mitt Romney. Oh, gosh. He says it's a grossly inappropriate comment to make. All right, Mitt. All right. So that's Mitt Romney. Now, you see the litany, right? A lot of the Republicans are just, uh, I think they're still without a message, really. It's kind of embarrassing. You know, the polls are coming out showing that the Republicans are not doing as hot as maybe they'd like to be doing, but they have no message. They have no deliverables that they're promising. And so what is to be expected. But we'll continue to cover that. Donald Trump making some big moves in D.C. Alina Abba out there saying, eh, kind of my fault that the 
Hillary Clinton saga didn't go our way, but we'll continue to follow and see what Trump has in store for us. And I appreciate you subscribing. I appreciate, thank you for the likes while you're here. Thank you for exercising those thumb muscles and clicking that thumbs up button. Very, very grateful for that. All right, my friends. And we've got one final segment left. And let's see what we've got here. Oh yeah, this will be a little bit of a shorter one, but it's Carrie Lake stuff. And uh, yeah, we should just, I guess, get into it. The cowardly Katie Hobbs refuses to debate Carrie Lake. And we've gone through this story. We read through all the back and forth, all the negotiations that took place. But we came to the final deadline. It's debate time. I mean, the election is right around the corner and we've got to get into some serious substance, don't we? Well, if you recall, remember that Carrie Lake told Katie Hobbs, hey, I'll debate you anywhere, anytime, any way you want. You pick the moderator. You tell us what the questions. I don't care. And Katie Hobbs responded and said, oh, no, I don't want to show up and debate you. Why don't we do two separate interviews? You talk for 30 minutes and then I'll talk for 30 minutes. We'll both get opening and closing statements. And that's the end of it. Well, obviously, that's not a debate. That's two separate interviews. And you really don't want to do that. And so the Arizona Corporation or the Arizona Debate Commission, they were asked with or tasked with holding a hearing to have a conversation about all of this. And we're on debate season. We're asking ourselves, is Fetterman going to debate Oz? Are we going to see some of the big, big sort of uh, important races come to a head in any way, shape or form? Well, let's see. This is a clip from the Arizona Debate Commission, and they're asking Katie Hobbs and her campaign manager are you going to debate Carrie? Okay, not separate interviews, not text messages, not. Are you going to show up in a debate format and actually have a conversation? And let's listen to what the campaign manager for Katie Hobbs's campaign has to say. Well, let me ask, Demont, is there any scenario um, in which um, Secretary Hobbs will share the stage with uh, Ms. Lake in a traditional? what I think we all can view as a traditional debate format? Well, I'm not going to answer a hypothetical question right here, but if you want to um, lay out what that would look like in writing, we're happy to review it. I I don't think it is a hypothetical question. (laughs) You've been in, is there any scenario where where Ms. Hobbs will share the stage with Ms. Lake in a debate? We would need to see what the details of that proposal. I want to share the stage. I'm sorry, I'm not sure who that was, but do any other commissioners have any questions um, for Ms. DeMont? No, nothing else to ask. Okay, thank you, Ms. DeMont. Thank you, Ms. DeMont, for nothing, right? Shocking. It's like, hey, we didn't ask you a hypothetical. We asked you for your terms. What are your terms? Is there any scenario that you would like to see happen so that we could have an actual debate? Well, I'm not prepared to answer any hypotheticals. It's not a hypothetical. It's like tomorrow. What what terms would you like to see tomorrow? And she says, well, I'd have to see it in writing. And so you can see the debate. The debate commission is kind of scoffing at her, right? Look at this guy, Talos down here. As soon as as soon as Damien says, uh, it's not really a hypothetical at all. That's a question right here. But if you want to um, lay out what that would look like in writing, we're happy to review it. Well, I don't think it is a hypothetical question. <laughs> Yeah, it's not. Talos has a little smile on his face. Is there any scenario where where Ms. Hobbs will share the stage with Ms. Lake 
on a, in a debate. Nope, there is not. We would need to see what the details of that proposal. In the I want to share the stage. Pathetic. And some weirdo is chiming in. I'll get on the stage with Carrie Lake. Yeah, I'm sure you would. Now, after that conversation, after that hearing, there was a conversation amongst the debate committee, right? They said, well, what, what do we want to do? Do we want to have Katie Hobbs and do separate interviews or what's the status? What do we want to do here? And so they decided against that. They posted on Facebook. They said the meeting included statements from both campaigns. All right. We talked to everybody here. You can watch the whole thing. It's a two hour recording if you want to see it. But they say today, the Arizona commission voted to reject the request to replace the standard debate format, which is what Katie Hobbs wanted with a separate 30 minute town hall style interview with each respective candidate. Like that change. We're not going to do it. The commission will give its staff and the campaigns of Katie Hobbs and Carrie Lake seven days to find an acceptable format to both parties. And Carrie Lake has already said, well, what are you talking about? We have no issues with any of that stuff. So K Carrie Lake responded, actually, let's go over here on September 11th, after the campaign election debate committee came out and said, no, we're not doing two 30 minute interviews. Katie Hobbs, and her campaign came out and they released the following on 9-11 too. Shameful. It says Katie Hobbs and her campaign responds to the Citizens for Clean Elections. They say today, Secretary Hobbs campaign manager, Nicole DeMont, who you just heard, responded to the committee. They say Secretary Hobbs remains willing and eager to participate in a town hall style event, such as a forum she participated in last week in which Arizonans were able to hear directly from Hobbs about her in-depth policy plans and how she would approach governing the state. Unfortunately, debating a, listen, a conspiracy theorist like Carrie Lake, what? Whose entire campaign is a platform to cause enormous chaos and make Arizona the subject of national ridicule, what? Would only lead to constant interruptions, pointless distractions, and childish name-calling. Arizonans deserve much better than Carrie Lake, and that's why we're confident Katie Hobbs will be elected our next governor. We must respectfully decline the invitation. And that wasn't very respectful. That's not a very respectful declination. She's a psycho conspiracy theorist who's in, in causing chaos in Arizona and embarrassing us all. I guess it's a respectful declination to the committee, but it's kind of a rude declination nonetheless. Okay, so absolutely is not willing to debate. Pretty cowardly thing to do. And uh, let's see what Miss Carrie Lake had to say in response. Carrie Lake responds to Katie Hobbs running away from a debate. She says on September 12th. All right, election committee. We were disappointed to hear over the weekend that Katie Hobbs has yet again turned down the invitation from your committee to join the debate plan for October 12th. This is even in despite of the extension you granted her last week. It's evident that Hobbs has little regard for the mission of your committee and your desire that the voters of Arizona see two gubernatorial candidates as you've done for decades. Carrie Lake says, it's also disturbing that Hobbs, who currently serves as our secretary of state and the administrator of our elections, think so little of the voters in the democratic process that she would rob them of their one chance to see a fair and minded, a fair and informative debate. This entire episode has been increasingly and incredibly revealing of Hobbes's character. 
Hobbs is clearly afraid to debate Carrie Lake, but given that Hobbs also refused to debate her opponent in her primary, we suspect she has a paralyzing fear of being challenged on stage by anyone who might question her record. That fear may be understandable, but we believe it is a disqualifying trait for someone who is asking to lead Arizona in a high-profile public office for the next four years. Carrie Lake and her campaign, they say, we are writing to inform the commission that, despite Katie Hobbs' refusal, Carrie Lake still plans to attend the debate moderated by Ted next week. However, we are also asking that the committee approve another extension of the deadline you set for Hobbs and extend the invitation, keep it open. Carrie says, Carrie Lake will not protest if Hobbs agrees to show up for the debate in the 11th hour, even if it's the day of. I don't care. It is our hope that the commission won't care either. While we understand that a last minute reversal by Hobbs would pose logistical challenges for the committee and Simmons, we believe that the prospect of an actual debate between two candidates is too important to the people of Arizona to allow artificial deadlines to get in the way. It is our hope that Hobbs will have a change of heart and find the courage between now and October to join Kerry Lake on the debate stage and have a real discussion about the issues facing Arizona, their plans to address them, and their vision for our state's future. Either way, we look forward to working with the commission on putting together the closest thing to an actual debate that the people of Arizona can get. Thank you, Kerry Lake, for governor. And, you know, she's, I'll be there. I'd love to be there. I'll be there and I'll be happy to talk to Carrie, to Katie Hobbs if she shows up, which we know she probably will not. The polls, meanwhile, are showing that things are getting close, which is causing people like Chuck Todd over at MSNBC to get a little bit concerned. You can see from 538, they've got a little bit of an analysis here for us. Let's turn off the, uh, well, no, we'll leave that on. They say it's a toss up now in Arizona. Carrie Lake wins 47 and 100, and Katie Hobbs win. They're reporting 53 in 100. So it's a nail biter, my friends. So if you know who you are likely to support, now's a good time to do that. Carrie Lake catching up to Katie Hobbs, and we're hoping for a good victory. Meanwhile, People around the nation starting to notice that Katie Hobbs, not that great of a candidate. Here's Chuck Todd and the crew over at MS or Chuck Todd and the crew over at NBC having a conversation about just how bad of a candidate Katie Hobbs actually is and why she might need to step her game up before she gets steamrolled by the Carrie Lake train. But I came away believing Mark Kelly is stronger than I thought. And so is Carrie Lake. Being on television as she Carrie Lake, being mm -hmm. a former TV anchor for, what was it, 20 years? Yeah. There is a sense from voters that I know this person and whatever is being said about them and attack ads, et cetera, well, maybe that's true, but maybe it's just politics. She can't be like that because she's been in my living room for the last 20 years. So she has right. a benefit there. So you watch that in a vacuum and you say, well, Carrie Lake has to be down 10. And you're right, and you see the polls, and it's neck and neck. And I think cinema is a political talent. I'll give her that. But Katie Hobbs is just a, not a good candidate. Oh, Katie Hobbs is not a good candidate. And I'm not sure what kind of bubble that guy's living in, but Carrie Lake seems like not like she'd be down by 10. She it seems to me like it seems like she'd be up by 10. I mean, you at least hear from Carrie Lake. You don't even hear from Katie Hobbs at all. 
Even the people at NBC are concerned about Katie Hobbs and her ability to win in Arizona, which is good news for Arizona.